In any history of the Australian stage, my guest today would figure significantly. Terence Clark has contributed to a myriad of forms as director, actor, composer, writer and teacher. Clark directed the world premieres of John O'Donoghue's A Happy and Holy Occasion and Giannis Belotus's Backyard. Together with Nick Enright, he wrote the musical's Variations, The Venetian Twins and Summer Rain, repertoire visited regularly by theatre companies around the nation. His appointments have included Associate Director of Perth's National Theatre Company, Founding Artistic Director of the Hunter Valley Theatre Company and Artistic Director of National Playwrights Conference and also Head of Directing at the National Institute of Dramatic Art. In 2007, he was made a member of the Order of Australia. Terry is tremendous company and a great raconteur, so it was a treat to sit down with him for this episode of Stages. Well, it's lovely to catch up at long last. At long last. We've uh, had this meeting in our sights for a while. Terence Clark, Terence Osborne Clark. Is that a family name, Osborne? Yes, it is. My father was Stanley Osborne Clark, who was born on the 18th of January in the year 1901. And uh, I assumed it had been a family name until I realised the news had just come through <coughs> from uh, England that Queen Victoria had died at Osborne. And my father's family were Protestants from County Cork. They must have been a part of a tiny Protestant enclave and therefore great supporters of the monarchy. And so I'm the second generation and and last. It's a good thing she didn't die at Bath or something. <laughs> Terence Bath Clark. Yeah. <laughs> or office. Terence Office Clark. Who is the office clerk? <laughs> Um, actor, teacher, director, composer, administrator, is there a creative role that you haven't completed in the theatre? I wish I knew more about lighting. Um, I'm, I'm entirely in the hands, or almost entirely in the hands, of the lighting designer and operator. And I don't know very much about sound. I know nothing of video. I'm very glad, however, I did my stint as an actor ASM. I feel sorry for any director who hasn't acted. And I feel not quite as sorry for any actor who's never, a director who's never stage managed. I feel a bit sorry for an actor who's never stage managed too, because they, they take it for granted what stage management do. Yeah. So it's good to have a, a holistic appreciation of, yes. of all the parts which I come think together. So, yes. I'd love to be, I wish I'd been able to sing, although I have sung professionally, it's been terrible. And I would love to be able to dance. That's the end of my wish list. <laughs> but it's true, I go to the opera and I think how wonderful to have uh, that, that power and that uh, ability to connect with an audience. Through, I haven't enjoyed through. directing opera because they're such spoiled divas. Oh. Do you know Opera Australia? No, I'll start earlier. At NIDA, <coughs> all stage management have to do a music course they have to be able to read music why so that they can call cues from a uh, from a music score certainly but for also this reason that at Opera Australia there's someone in the wings with every before before any actor singer makes an entrance 
the stage manager there saying, go. Oh, they're so spoiled. Awful. What genre of music do you like listening to? What sort of music? Mm. I have extremely Catholic tastes. Before I went to university, I was, I, I heard pop tunes. I was, mind you, the music of the 40s was pretty awful, um, the popular music. But I knew those songs. But I was, uh, we, we had done Gilbert Sullivan every year. I was a great fan of Gilbert Sullivan, which incidentally has come in very handy in setting words, as, as indeed has the English hymnal. Because I, for 10 years, I went to chapel every day of my life, um, except Saturdays. I was the romantics mainly when I went to university. Didn't like any modern music. I was I really didn't know. I played a bit of Debussy, but I didn't know it well. But studying music at Sydney University made a huge difference to my the catholicity of my musical taste. And I'd say my favourite composers are uh, Beethoven, uh, Schubert, Beethoven as uh, uh, the chamber work, not the symphonies. Tchaikovsky. I was mad about Rachmaninoff in my early teens. And then I discovered, when I was 17, I went to see a, a, one of those wonderful bad movies, which was a supposed biofilm of the lives of Rogers and Hart. Of him Words and Music, heard. I think. Was it, was it's called Words and Music. Yeah, yeah. It's not a good film, but it was an eye-opener for me. I just came back. I, I remember coming back from seeing it and going to the piano in one of the rooms uh, in the university and uh, writing three sort of pop songs, sort of, but yeah. in the frank imitation oh, or the sorry, thought of, of Rogers and Hart. And that introduced me to the Ameri great American songbook. And uh, now I have to add... One of the works we studied in third year was Prokofiev's um, Symphony Classique, Classical Symphony. Another one was Britain's Serenade for Tenor Horn and Strings. I became also mad about Ravel and Debussy. I think, I think Ravel even more than Debussy. So your musical and, influences are quite broad. Oh, huge, huge, very, very Catholic. Terry, let's go back to beginnings. Yes. Are you a Sydney boy? I am. I was born about half a mile from this very room. Oh, right. There was a, a private hospital in Ocean Street, which uh, is now home unit, uh, townhouses. You, 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 you haven't lived in this area for long. On the is contrary. What's, what's no, I, 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 my... My, I can't say my family because there was my mother, mainly my, my, I was really brought up by my grandparents. My, my parents split when I was in the cradle. I, uh, my mother, whose life was really ruined by that split, I think. Um, Did she marry again or? Twice. Twice and divorced twice more. Right. And she was often in another city, either married or working. She had to work. And my father paid 
alimony until she married again and then always paid until I was 16. In fact, he, he would have paid me at university except that uh, he died bankrupt and I was landed. I don't know how I got through St. Paul's College. I, didn't, I did pay some money after I left. So this is your secondary education? No, my third, my, my tertiary. No, my, he paid for my, uh, my secondary education, which uh, I was sent to a country boarding school in 1942 when I was still six, but almost seven, uh, I think to get me out of Sydney. And I think also in my father's mind to get me out of the influence of my of women and my grandfather and my grandparents. Uh, who were like parents of me. My grandmother was much more my mother than my mother. Right. Uh, and you're an only child? I'm an only child. And I was what's more their first born grandchild. The next one didn't come for seven years. And they had had three girls. So in a very real sense, I was their son, just seven years younger than their, than their youngest daughter. And they were Christian scientists. And I think my father disapproved of that. I was simultaneously brought up as a Christian scientist and as a high Anglican. Very puzzling for... Uh, so I had five years at All Saints College and then um, I went to Shaw where I was for five years. I repeated the leaving. Uh, after the, after the, I had piano lessons. Well, first of all, when I got to uh, All Saints in 1942, I, I had one friend there. Our mothers were friends and I'd known this boy for some time. And uh, he had piano lessons. And I went to the piano teacher, who was the headmaster's wife, and asked if I could have piano lessons too. And she said, you'd have to have your father's permission. I hadn't met my father, but I had an address for him, and I wrote to him. So what age are you here? I'm, 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 I'd have, because of my birthday being in February, it was always just after the meeting at first term. So I'm now seven. And I wrote to my father, he said, no, I couldn't have lessons because he was made to, made to learn the piano when he was a boy, and in consequence, he hated music. I thought that was a strange response. I, I think it's strange now that I'm older. Um, but at the time, I was terribly hurt, and I went in tears to my... The piano teacher was the headmaster's wife, and I said, I can't have I'm not allowed to have lessons. She said, don't worry. He said, I'll give them to you. On the quiet. Well, it wasn't quiet to anyone else. It was only yeah. quiet on the quiet to my father. And because I loved it, I very quickly overtook all the other boys. And at the end of that first time, he, she wrote to my father and said, I've been giving your son piano lessons for free. And I really think he, he, I think he shows promise. And I think he should have lessons. And so my father relented. And so for 1942, three, four, five, and six, I had three terms a year of piano lessons. And I wonder if you could guess how much a term of piano lessons cost in those days. Five pound. Seven and sixpence. <laughs> 75 cents. That's good value. It, it, it's very hard for well, it's hard enough for you, but for, for a student now to think that the, at one stage, you know, my, my first job as a teacher was uh, £600 a year. And I now get that when I do my uh, 
or I have done, you know, uh, years ago when I do my evening with with a Donald friend, I get exactly that twelve hundred dollars. Well, one hit for for one hour. <laughs> Times have changed. Times have changed, and we have to, re- and we've often rewound the clock. Yes, since we landed on Plymouth Rock. Yes. So the the young Terence, what were your career aspirations? Were you, I wanted to be a composer and I wanted to be an actor. Right. What were the influences then? Were you seeing live theatre? Your, your your grandparents taking you to the theatre? No, no, no. Off to the cinema? No, no. Where, where we, did we the didn't, there wasn't a lot of money. We lived in Darling Point, but there wasn't a lot of money about rented. Um, at All Saints, and this is during war years and the next year, 46, uh, the school didn't, uh, was, it was, there was much, uh, there was very little money about The school didn't have a projector, didn't have a screen. It might have had an epidioscope or it could have slide projector. It certainly didn't have a movie projector. On the school premises, there was the, a very old, what had been, I think, uh, an inn, a sort of a staging house, one large room, as I recall, which had been converted into a stage and uh, that was called the rec room and we used to have to make our own entertainment and so there were lots of little plays sometimes bigger plays nothing ever very long teachers wrote plays um, one I remember was called Welcome to Whoop Whoop and <laughs> <laughs> um, and so uh, very early on, I, I was acting in these things. I loved it. We would have quiz nights. We'd have a search hunt. We'd, we had to make our own entertainment. I, was a, I found I had no friends at school. I had one friend in my last year, a house captain of another house. But I really I, I never made friends for some reason. Uh, I had been terribly bullied as a younger boy. And it wasn't helped by the fact that I was always much younger than the rest of the group. So Often, you were a shy child? I still am a shy child. Yes. But I've learnt not to seem shy. Yeah, yeah. As one does. Um, but my natural instinct is to be shy, I'm afraid. Uh, so, but still, uh, being shy and, and, you know, you've been in positions where you've had to face a class, face a company of actors. Oh, oh, indeed. But I see, see, one learns. You have to make yourself learn. And I think if I hadn't gone to boarding school, and I have to tell you that my first years, I cried myself to sleep my first year, every night, when I was seven. My grandmother kept on putting my teddy bear in, my mother kept on taking it out, but my grandmother won. And uh, I took my teddy bear, I was, uh, can you imagine what the other boys thought of some of them? I, I was seven and they would have some been up to 12, a little boy who took his teddy bear to bed. It was exacerbated my years. I, going to university, if you said to me, what is the most important thing about going to university for me? One was, I'll tell you about in a moment. But the second was the fact that my mother had a series of breakdowns. Her third marriage ended in the most appalling divorce. 
appalling. A practicing sadist, very plausible man. And uh, my mother never really recovered from it. And she had, in my first year, she was at, um, I can see her in heaven shaking at my her fist of being saying, please don't say this. She was at Broughton Hall Psychiatric Hospital next door to Cullen Park. And my grandparents would sometimes take me there. But after the first visit, my grandfather, who was not a sensitive man, said to me, I don't think you should come again. And I remember the other wonderful thing I've mentioned was I had friends for the first time in my life. And because I passed the leaving in 1950, when I was still 15, my father said to me, I want you to repeat the leaving. You're too young to go to university. And he said, uh, by this time he'd moved to Sydney and I got to know him. In fact, at the end, in May 1952, I was flown to Melbourne and... If you just wait one moment. Yep. I'll... In May 1942, I was flown on a DC-3, three, three pounds return. A lot of money mm. for a child. Oh, isn't that gorgeous? And that photograph appeared it was on a right-hand page of either the AIDS or the Argus the next day. Because when I'd arrived, in those days, everyone came out onto the no oh, air bridges, they were onto, the, onto yeah. the tarmac. My bag was unloaded and I was put in front of the plane and photographed. And I, I assumed that's what happened when you flew. <laughs> At seven. I'm sure, in retrospect, I'm pretty sure it was photographed the, the only reason could be because I was the youngest person ever to travel unaccompanied on, yeah. on, on ANSET. Yep. But sometime, I would think probably 49 or 50, my father moved from Melbourne to Sydney to start his own business. And, uh, and so he sent me back to shore for, to repeat the leaving. I was house captain and a prefect and... But all the time I was at Shaw, they had a very strong theatre, more than music tradition. I, I, I continued piano lessons there under a wonderful woman called, who was the wife of George Fawns Allman, called Dora Rancloud. It was the wrong sort of lessons. I, I needed a stern technician. I'd been badly taught in Bathurst and I continued to be inadequately taught. Not badly, just inadequately. But at, at Shaw, there were three theatre events, theater events every year. There was something called Junior Play Day, something called Senior Play Day, and the musical. The musical in those days was always Gilbert and Sullivan, except in 1950 when the Doyle Cart came, came out and so we had to do Edward German's Merry England. They wouldn't have released amateur rights to anyone. And so in those years, I was in the Junior Play Day for two years, but the houses used to be, so I was in two plays that first junior play day. I was in the house play at the senior play day, and I was in, I was in the musical every year. Sometimes I was in two plays, sometimes in three. For instance, in my very last year, 1951, we did scenes from Hamlet. I was in a French play in which I can now recite you 
one of the speeches, a play written for children called La Poudre Fulminante, which means the powder, the packs of punch. And I played Cleobule, the servant, and I can remember this speech, you know, 1685, that's almost 70 years later. Yeah, it's impressive. Il so, eh? Il va s'amuser. Say, Dr. Sardelev, and you say, Bobo, what tête rotate la pouce, fait tirer de langue. Isn't that extraordinary? That is extraordinary. It's still with you. And I don't I, want to remember it. I can't help it. It's still there. And I wish I could press a button and, and remember things I need to remember. <laughs> <laughs> so, what were the opportunities for actor training at that time? Because. No, there were no oh, oh there would have been people who would offer to give theatre classes. Oh, 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 the independent had theatre classes, certainly, oh, certainly. A friend of mine, good friend, uh, John Kingsmill, um, had lessons there and actually became, for a short time, a professional actor. Uh, but there was no, the only professional theatre was um, imports. The latest musical from New York or the latest comedy or thriller from New York or the West End. And presented by J.C. Williamson. Williamson's or Garnet Carroll. And that was it. So would you have to have gone overseas to pursue an acting career? Oh yes you did. That's what I did and that's what John Bell did and that's what uh, uh, Cyril Richard did. That's what uh, Leo McKern did. And not without success, what Peter Finch did. I saw Peter Finch at the uh, Independent. Um, occasionally, and much more, I say occasionally, but it never happens now, so it seems frequently in comparison. There would be a tour from uh, the Old Vic or the Royal Shakespeare Theatre Company, or there would be uh, a tour, uh, I remember the... Um, New York City Ballet came, did two wonder, a number of wonderful seasons. So there was, but there was very little professional theatre. Of course, I didn't say to my father, I want to be an actor or, or a composer, um, but my family knew that. So those were the things. The other big thing about going to university, which I said I would mention is this. I won a Commonwealth scholarship in arts law a six-year course. When I went to university, you just said, I'm going to university because in New South Wales there was only one university. And there was one in Victoria and one in Queensland and one in Tasmania and one in South Australia and one in Perth. There are now 28. And so I went and I registered in arts law and I knew I would do English, my best subject, and mathematics, my really best subject, but they were both great. I was very good at both of them and French and psychology. However, both French and psychology, I was going, I was going into, I think, advanced, advanced pure maths. I think there were two levels in maths. And both of them had a, a, a lesson at 9 a.m. on Friday morning. And I went, I went to the professor of French, whose name I can't remember, and thank God, he said, I had to attend or I couldn't enroll. So I wasn't going to give up maths because it would be my best subject. And I was cast about for other subjects. The year before, 1951, the university had introduced a music department. So I went to see the professor, Piet, 
and he said, what, what had I done? I said, well, I, my father gave me, for passing the leaving, he gave me a year of tuition at the Sydney Conservatorium, where it, by some, it was a terrible thing. I should have gone to Alexander Svijensky, but I went to, because he was a technician, I went to a man called, um, not Lindy Evans, Frank Hutchins, uh, who was called the poet of the con. I didn't need poetry. <laughs> I needed technique, technique, discipline. And it wasn't easy at Shaw to find time to practice and there weren't a lot of pianos to practice on. And I didn't do enough practice. And in consequence, I'm not a very good pianist. I'm musical, I'm poetic, but I'm not much of a technician. Of course, composing is the most extraordinary I'm experience, I don't like to say gift, but it is, if it is I suppose, anything, I suppose it's a gift. There's the old story of Haberstein slaving, slaving over the words of, oh, what a beautiful morning, over a period of days, giving the words to Richard Rogers, and Rogers going to the piano, and without, just the song composed itself, as it were. And I've had that experience too. Sometimes to Nick Enright, my great collaborator's surprise, he's been there and he's just seen me do it. And I don't know where it comes from. I've not seen the words before and then suddenly it seems in a way the muse sort of unfair. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Someone should take a lot of time over words and the music. I mean, I, I do give a lot of attention once the melody comes, I give a lot of attention to how to write the accompaniment and refining, but, but the, the initial inspiration just comes, who can say where it comes from? Well, well, lyrics are poetry, aren't they? And I guess No, it, lyrics are not poetry. Well, a form of poetry. And I'm not even sure if they're a form of poetry. I was very angry when Bob Dylan was awarded the Nobel Prize for poetry, for literature, because and I think Sondheim has made this point somewhere, not about Dylan, but I think he has made it, that the words of a lyric, he's written two marvellous books Sondheim about, about his lyrics, but at the same time he discusses the lyrics of others. They're wonderful, required reading really for music theatre people. And he, he makes the point that a lyric has to be immediately understandable. And whereas poetry doesn't, poetry doesn't take place in real time. A lyric takes place in real time. So you have to comprehend it immediately. You can't stop and think, oh, what did that mean? Because the music and the words have moved on. Yeah. I'm not familiar enough with uh, uh, Dylan's oeuvre. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I can't speak enough for Dylan, but any song of his I've heard, I've found immediately intelligible. It's not poetry, it is lyrics. It's a form of versification. It's a reflection on self or character. Yes, it can, it can be one of many things. There are many different sorts of music theatre song, there are many different sorts of popular song, not as many. So the, the, the subject, I think, is not... Uh, intrinsic 
to whether it could be called poetry or versification or not. I mean, I, I'm making too great a point and I'm emphasizing it too much. Yes, of course, there is a sense in which the lyrics of a song come under that very large umbrella poetry, but they're not literature. And that's what the Nobel Prize was for. major creative relationship you had with Nick Enright. Uh, together, your partnership has given us uh, at least three of the great musicals in the Australian canon in, in Venetian Twins, Summer Rain, Variations. You could, say si you could say six and a half. There are three and a half versions of Summer Rain. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so when you were working together, did... What, it's a standard question. What what came first, the music or the lyrics, or were you able to ride that? Nearly also? always the lyrics, but not always. Um, I got to know Nick well. <clears throat> he was still at the university when I I was still teaching. There would be in the late, the very late sixties, maybe even seventy, and he um, had, had done some acting for. He played the Undertaker's assistant in the revival of Oliver. Um, I think he was a pretty terrible actor myself, but um, he would say that, wouldn't he? Uh, I was always embarrassed by his acting. Why so? Because he did it with his head. Right. Nick, uh, if it's true that you can't take the Jesuit out of the boy, the Jesuit never left Nick. Right. The self-criticism, the relentless being hard on yourself. But is that what also drove him as well to to create the the expansive work I that he did? I don't know. I don't know. He was the most driven person I've ever known, and also the angriest, and the most generous too. I suppose the oh, very the generous, of wonderfully generous mentorship, a lot of mentorship, and I mean, so much is to show for his life, his short life, much more than for mine, longer life. I mean, my. My creative years have been longer, twice as long as his, I suppose. Uh, the, the giving up oneself, there's an act of generosity in that too, a huge act of generosity. I left teaching Cranbrook in, in, at the end of second term, 1970, and I was invited by David Mitchell and Colleen Clifford to join a little venture which they called South Coast Summer Theatre which was uh, involved hiring a house and there was a little theatre, an amateur theatre there, which we hired and we put on three plays and Andrew Sharp was part of it. And a friend of mine, well, well not a friend of mine, he was a, a, a colleague at Cranbrook and he had done honours music the year after me, Charlie Coleman, with his wife, who was then wife, came down to see one of them and he said, uh, are you interested in taking part in a new venture? I said, what new venture is that? He said, well, John Bell, 
he said there's a he's looking for someone who can play the piano and act I said I thought you might be the man and the new venture was Ron Ron Blair had come across a book on remainder called uh, the life of James Hardy Vaux with uh, with his dictionary of Australian slang with the conscious model of the beggar's opera that is he would write to established folk tunes but the thing of course is that Ron had written poetry and he wasn't didn't feel bound or constrained by writing words to established folk songs which delighted me because I was very happy to do arrangements of folk songs but I was more delighted to be able to set original to music one of the things that disappointed me I think I had I had talked as a younger man or as a boy of being a composer but the sort of music that was being composed was not to my taste at all neither dodecaphonic music with its the Schoenbergian tone row or music concrete electronic music that wasn't of interest and I didn't compose a a note uh, until um, this happened. It was a release, by which time there had been a sort of move away from the extreme difficulty, I'm talking for the listener as much as for the composer, of a lot of, of contemporary music, or then contemporary music, which was dodecaphonic, and music concrete had more or less hit a dead end, I think. I think still, it, it still exists in uh, radiophonic studios in, in France at the BBC. And meantime, of course, I had learnt of Richard Rogers and, and Cole Porter and Irving Berlin and the great George Gershwin. And uh, my, my musical horizons were much broader than ever had been uh, during my adolescence. So, um, that's how I got into uh, Nimrod. I'm still teaching. And in 1972, I think, I think Fresh Invo was 71, but in 72 it was revived by Nimrod, this time directed not by John Bell, but by Arnie Nemi, and not starring John Gaydon, but Jonathan Hardy. And we went on a, quite a big tour of New South Wales. It ended with a week in Newcastle when I was still teaching and I had to catch the light of the milk train home or the anti-milk train, whatever it is that, that leaves after a show, uh, to, in order to be teaching the next day. And on that country tour for the Arts Council, they needed an, uh, an ASM and Nick, who I'd met when he was a gopher at Nimrod, while he was still at university, he came on as I'd met him in during the original season of Flash and Vaux and then later when we did this strange Christmas play called Suddenly Last Supper. Um, <laughs> what was that about? Uh, Need I ask? I, 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 it, 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 Michael Bodia had done an adaptation of, of something else so looking for a Christmas show and this was it. It had a good cast. It, 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 it was a mixture of many things. I, th I think John Wood played a character called Bob Ratchet, 
<laughs> instead of Cratchit. Instead of Cratchit. Yeah. And his Carol Skinner, I think, was his wife. And John Derham played Jesus Christ as a stand-up nightclub comedian, which is why my mother wasn't allowed to sing <laughs> the piece. Um, anyhow, Nick was around the Nimrod in those days, and he volunteered. And so I got to know him terribly well as um, uh, he was our ASM on the tour. And he was very fond of Flesh Jimbo, and he... I was acting for Nimrod in those days for the Sydney Festival. They used to do a kids' show on uh, Clark Island, and this was a revival of Treasure Island, as, as adapted, and very well adapted, I think, by Ken Haller. By this time, Nick was associate director of the State Theatre Company of South Australia, and he had written at some stage to John Bell and said, if you're ever looking for a play for Drew Forsyth, uh, there's a wonderful comedy by Goldoni, Carlo Goldoni, Il Due Veneziani Gemelli, I Due Gemelli Veneziani, that translates as the two Venetian, or the Venetian twins, which has a wonderful role for Drew Forsyth because he plays two characters. It's the first known play in which one actor plays two characters. So that when, after the collapse of Nimrod, the state, the oh, of the old Tate, the collapse of the old Tate, the state under uh, Neville Rand decided to set up the, the a new state theatre company. And the interim artistic director was John Clark, the interim general manager was Elizabeth Butcher, they, John decided a season in which a number of theatre companies would each do a play. Uh, and he called it a world theatre season, I think. And so the, the wish was that it be a play, have some sort of international. So John cast about and John wrote to Nick and said, do you think it could be a musical? And Nick said, I don't see why not and set about musicalizing it. And he had suggested me to write the music. So this, at the end of the day of Treasure Island, I had this message that John wanted to speak to me, and this was what uh, was on the table. And so Nick would send me a parcel of lyrics. We were such beginners, both of us. I may as well put on record something of which I'm ashamed. I didn't bother reading the play, <laughs> the original. I hadn't seen, Nick had not done the linking bits. He'd thought of places where you could musicalize, make a song. I didn't know where they were going to come in the piece, or what they were going to be, but, but and, and I wrote it all in six weeks. I knew that Pancrazio was the villain. I knew that there were twins, obviously the Venetian twins, and I knew which one was the, uh, the weightlifter and which one was the, the doozy. But you've got all sorts of motives throughout, you know, whether it be the, the ballad of... Um, Middle-class propriety. Yes. Which is very uh, Kurt Vile. Oh, and, well, and of course, I knew it was the, going to be Kurt Vile from its very name. Yes, and then the trio... And because in the original, the, the, the thing is, uh, uh, the judge sings the ballad of... In <laughs> and away you go. In a very, in a very Brechtian way. Put yourself in my shoes. Will you give a guy a break? 
Why the hell should I lose when a dollar is at stake? Put yourself in my shoes, cause I'm telling you the stakes. How the hell could I choose? You gotta hustle for the brakes. John had been very impressed by the work of Jennifer McGregor in a uh, season of short plays, um, which there was no singing. And, but of course she was a singer. As it happened, she, she and her sister were the daughters of one of my teachers at Shaw. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. The, the, I, I knew that we had an opera singer, so I had to get operatic music. And John's original idea he said it should all be in the style of um, of uh, bel canto, and I said, John, you have to love music, a style to parody it, and I don't love bel canto, <laughs> and I think an evening of bel canto, cod bel canto, would be unendurable. I find the evening of non cod bel canto hard enough very often. Uh, and so he took my point and I was allowed to set them as I wished. Before the rehearsal period began, but towards a pre-production, Nimrod sent me across to have a few days in Adelaide with Nick, uh, where we um, we looked at there, and he heard the music for the first time, and uh, the first song for uh, for um, Tonino was called "Love and Honor," and. Uh, I wasn't mad about it, uh, Nick wasn't, and I, John said, that's the wrong song. And he was absolutely right. And so Nick wrote completely different lyrics. The first song was a sort of Nelson Eddy-ish, 
Um, I can't think of a better term than that. The thing I always loathed. Uh, the uh, then the lyrics became, "I am strong and as brave as an," and that was it, and it became a alamachia, uh, a march. And I said to John, Drew has a really big song, a really big sing in this piece because he's not singing one lead, he's singing two leads. And so they paid for him to have some um, singing lessons. Not that he hadn't sung before, he had. But it's one thing to have a song or two in a musical and quite another to sustain such a big leading role in a piece. I am handsome and fine as a study by Titian, as calm as a monk in his cloister. For I'm a patrician and I'm a Venetian. The world is my oyster. I'm engaged to a beauteous lady in Venice. We love and we honor each other. Her father considers that I am a menace. He offers her hand to another, and he'll drag her to church on a rope. Two of them think that they own her But she loves me so much she agrees to elope And I send her along to Verona But wasn't that foolhardy to defy her father and suitor? Foolhardy? Never! Never, never cross a true Venetian Never cross a man of my degree Never cross a man who laughs at life And I think the sad, sad, sad thing about the Venetian Twins is this. It was on the, on the last night of the original season, which was in early December 1976, in the guest list, uh, well, not the guest list, uh, given a freebie, was Sir John Drummond artistic director of the Edinburgh Festival, and he adored it and invited us to the next year's Edinburgh Festival. Paul Isles, who was then the general manager, a very sui generis general manager he was, did things his own way, he said, we won't announce this until we make a big splash and then we'll have to raise money for AFS and so on. So it was never announced and it never became announced and it never was to be announced because around about June or July came a telegram, remember telegrams, which said, regret unable to find theatre offer withdrawn. John Drummond. And I think the careers of definitely of Drew Forsyth, of John Bell, of Nick Enright and of Terence Clark all would have changed because I would swear that after its week or whatever it was in Edinburgh, it would have been bought and gone into London, and who knows what would have happened. The play was revived twice more in Sydney, once the following year at the Seymour Centre, and then once in 1990, when John Frost, I can't say he bought the rights. He said they wanted to buy the rights, but he couldn't afford any money for them. Would we give him the rights against, you know, the 10% of royalties? Well, actually, more than 10% because we, get, we each get six. 
And he persuaded the Queensland Theatre Company to mount it, and then it came to Sydney, and then it went to Melbourne. And it so happened that the last night in Sydney, the 22nd of December, was Nick Enright's 50th birthday. And in the audience were uh, Timothy West and uh, Prunella Scales. And I'd met Timothy, maybe Prunella, I think she was there. I had met Timothy twice before. I'd had him as a dinner guest. Um, it's quite a long story to that, but I won't now mention it. Uh, no, not, not indecent, it's just it's, uh, it's a diversion. At the party afterwards at David Marr's house in honour of Nick's 50th birthday, Timothy Weston Plough Scales made very approving noises. And I said, I thanked them, but I, you know, you expect visiting celebrities to be nice. And then afterwards, I had to say that. Uh, I said, I don't know how it seems to you, but in our firmament, Drew, I think, is a star. And Timothy West's exact words were, he is a great star and a great clown, and this performance should be seen throughout the world. Not this production, this performance. And he said he was on the board of the Bristol Old Vic. And he said to me, There's a, you have to be very careful when you're on the board of a company that you don't try to push too hard for something, but I'll see what I can do to get it on. And I said, well, I've been both an artistic director and on the board, so I know exactly how difficult it is and how much I would resent it. Uh, a member of the board told me what I what plays I should do and he uh, I visited him some years later when I was in London um, I went to see him after the show and Prunella Scale was there uh, and I got a very nice welcome and he said look I did my best uh, but they he said I would love to have seen it on and I think if Paul Isles had got a contract, if he got a contract and if he'd announced it, there would have been, there might have been, a, a groundswell. And, and if there had been a contract, it would have been very hard for Drummond to break it. But there obviously was not a contract. And the sad, sad thing, as I began to say, is this, that the Venetian Twins is the only leading role Ruth or Scythe has ever had. If you think about it. Yeah. And I I blessed Timothy West for putting his finger on it by saying, he is a great star and a great clown. He is not cast as a clown. Well, his, of course, the, the, the big number for him in that show, which is the, uh, the, the, the clowning Jindy. achievement, is, is Jindy Warbeck. Jindy Warbeck, yes. How did you arrive at that song? Uh, the, the lyrics arrived in the packet and uh, several people have subsequently written and said that, um, do you know J J J Jack or John O'Hagan? Yes, Jack O'Hagan. Brown, yeah, yeah. brown slouch hat and yeah. road to Gundagai and so on. He said, it's obviously pastiche Jack O'Hagan. And it is, but it wasn't conscious pastiche, it was subconscious pastiche. Mm. Uh, it's it's abs I mean the chord sequences, uh, 
they're all O'Hagan. It sounds like a 1930s song. It doesn't. <laughs> Very much so. Well, that's the great thing about the score, although there are various influences of vaudeville and Jack O'Hagan mm. and opera. Mm. And, uh, and Brecht and Weill. Yeah, absolutely. There is this uh, continuity throughout it of a, a very Australiana original voice. Well, I would like to think there was one composing mind in charge, but I'm not sure there was. <laughs> <laughs> Ten miles from the gammon There's a little one-horse town Ten miles beyond the gammon As the crow flies And ten miles from the gammon Gonna put my saddle down And never mind the mozzies Or the blowflies I'm going back on the track To Jindy Warraback Cause Jindy Warraback's the home for me there's an old-fashioned shack back in Jindy Warraback And it's the grandest home in all of Italy I'm a small-town boy, never meant to be a loner Don't want to see Perugia, I don't want to see Cremona And I'll never, ever, ever have to see Verona Back in Jindy Warraback Blowing my sack to be back in Jindy Warraback Even though the pubs all close at ten Get back the knack, don't be slack Back in Jindy Warraback Where the girls are women and the boys are all men Oh, I'm ready for the action at the town hall dances Wearing Californian poppy Gonna take my chances With a girl who's learnt the ropes From reading true romances Jindy Waraback is dusty, Jindy Waraback is windy, Jindy Waraback is off the beaten track, but if you want a shindy then you can't be Jindy. It's sleepy, it's a mole, but Jindy Waraback, Jindy Waraback is all too I ever dreamed of. Better believe me, I'm going back on that track to Jindy Waraback. I'm back in Jindy Wara when I play. I'll lug me pack on me back, back to Jindy Waraback, cause I'm making Jindy Waraback me hometown base. You can keep your Perugia, you can stuff Ramona, or even Etchy Roma, Adio Verona, cause I bought a little FJ, only had one owner. Ginny not much, I'm an indie. Going back to Ginny, not back to Gunda Windy. Going back to Ginny, it is a royal pindy. Going back to Ginny, to Windy Ginny. Terry, can we talk about the genesis of Summer Rain, which is yes. the other big uh, 
musical that's had uh, several productions. It has, and several versions. Now, but it originally was a commissioned piece by neither. You were writing for students. It was for the graduating class. I, I never get the year right. I think it might have been 1979, but it might not too. Uh, <coughs> there were 17 graduates, graduands, and the head of acting was my my then collaborator, Nick Enright. We'd only collaborated on the Venetian Twins. We were to collaborate twice more. He spoilt me for any other collaboration. Sadly, he was so wonderful. As head of acting, he suggested to John Clark, the head of NIDA at the time, that he write a play tailored to each of the 17 actors. It's very hard, as you will know, to find a graduation play which gives everyone a fair burst. And um, I don't know whether it was he or whether it was John Clark who suggested that it might be a musical. So John, or Nick perhaps, put it to his students. He was head of acting. How would it be if... We wrote uh, a musical for you in which every part was tailored to you and all the parts were pretty well equal. And it must have been suggested as a musical because the answer came back, no, we're not singers. Uh, some of them were, of course. Greg Stone, wonderful singer. But some of them were not. And I should perhaps have taken into account more in writing the music the range of each of them and the, the ability to sing of each of them, but I didn't. Um, that was naughty, I think. Well, you're sacrificing some of your own creativity, I guess, in having to cater or tailor-make 17 well, different roles. Well, That's... Nick was. Actually, there were 18, because one of them, uh, the wonderful Fiona Press, played twins. Um, but there was a very young girl who looked young, so it was easy to introduce young Kathy, who's only 16. It was because there were 17 characters, each of them more or less equal. Uh, one of the reasons there aren't many such plays is because it's very hard to write. If you think of the, the number of films in which there'd been a lot of equal roles, Robert Altman did it with um, Nashville. Nashville, in which I think there are 24 equal roles. His next film, he tried to do it with 48. It's called A Wedding, which I love, but most people don't, and it's regarded as a failure because it's very hard to follow 48 stories uh, or 48 people in the one film. But we do it in, he does it in Nashville. And I think there might have been an earlier film in which he did it with 12. So, but Nick brought it off. It was only when he suggested to Richard Werrett no, I think I have this out of... I was bumped into at a theatre one night, a woman whose name I think I would remember if I saw her, Margaret, can't remember her surname at the moment, who had a, a, a job working somewhere in the department or the Ministry of the Arts, somewhere like that. She said, um, when are we going to see Summer Rain again? And I said, I don't know. She said, have you put in for the centenary. And I said, what's that? She said, well, the, uh, the centenary committee of New South Wales is looking for 
looking for works to put on. And so we, I said to Nick, should we put it in? He said, yes. And by this time, he had rewritten it so it was more like a commercial musical with obvious leads and obviously second and obviously tertiary roles. And uh, the centenary committee accepted it. It was going to go on at Her Majesty's Theatre in Sydney. The Elizabethan Theatre Trust under the wife of the conductor of the, you know, I can't remember her name, the Ice Princess, they called her, um, was going to produce it. And Nick and I had agreed that perhaps John Crummel, they'd suggested, could direct it. Not John Crummel, John um, Ewing, John Ewing who'd had a lot of experience with musicals, uh, who were doing music, mini musicals at, um, I think it was the Silver Spade in, at the old Rex in King's Cross. And he'd played George Pancrazio in He played Pancrazio, uh, and we knew him from that, and wonderful he was. The happiest experience of my theatre career, he said. And he had acted in musicals too. In fact, he came to prominence having been from the ensemble, he came to prominence playing uh, Mordred in uh, Camelot. And then the New South Wales government had a financial crisis, which I suppose happens every now and then, and a razor committee was brought in, and, and one of the first things they did was to cut the funding for summer rain, and so that meant the New South Wales Theatre Trust wasn't going to do it, and didn't do it. And that was a sadness, a second uh, after the disappointment of not going to Edinburgh Festival. It was another blow, but one you knew yourself to blows, I suppose. From Mr Chifley downwards to the lowest copper's knock, every man's a crook, a crook, a con. From Momakaki upwards to the man from Iron Bark, and maybe even, yes, the mighty dog. Ruby, what are we doing out here fretting while they are in there asleep? Why don't we have the mongrels put down? Why? That old line that sold us and told us to hold us. A man is a woman's fate. What a fate! To cause it and pamper. Put jam on his damper while he sits there on his date. Oh, Ruby! And just when the bastard has got your lord and master, He'll cook up a lurk and try it on So dump him, dump him, no, shake him up and thump him You, you might miss the mongrel when he's gone Well, maybe you might miss the mongrel when he's gone Not that we'd miss Then John Richard Wirt had said to me as a friend Can I direct it for the centenary and I said I'd be very happy but it's not in my gift I'd approve it but it's not in my gift I said I'd love you to rate it because I thought Richard was very good with musicals don't know if you ever saw his uh, his uh, Chicago mm. he did quite a good um, oh the one based on I am a camera cabaret cabaret did quite and of course good. his company at the city company, the city company, the city well. company yeah. so I'd been very happy to do it but I don't know if Richard wasn't happy with it, yeah, but it was going to be John Ewing. And then John submitted the revised version to the Sydney Theatre Company, and they said they would do it. 
But very much to my disappointment, Richard didn't want to do it, having wanted to do the big production. And it was done by Rodney Fisher. Um, and by this time, the cast was reduced from 17 to 15. The, the thrust of the story was not changed so much as tweaked to make it uh, more a love story between two leading characters and uh, an antagonism story between the, the two parents. And the other characters became subsidiary. A new character was introduced, a school teacher, another one, a boy, didn't last long. Um, it lasted in that season. Uh, so it was 15 instead of 17. And then Robin Nevin had seen the STC production, uh, the, the, the Nimrod, uh, the NIDA production. Robin Nevin had seen the NIDA production and loved it. And when she went as artistic director to the Queensland Theatre Company, she decided to open her season with it, which was a big gamble, because, but she said, there are too many people in it. And so Nick revised again and brought it down to 13 characters. And David King had arranged, I, I had done the musical arrangements of the band for the NIDA production. David King, as musical director, I don't know whether he asked if he could do it or not, just did it. And I certainly approved because he was a much more experienced arranger than I. I had done, I mean, I had done a course in orchestration in my last year, my honours year at Sydney University, but I was by no means expert. I, I, I regard the, the Venetian Twins as a lucky shot. But Robin said, I can't do 10 in the band, I bring it down to six, which was what it had been at NIDA. So I was able to use that scoring. And then when Robin returned to, to take over the Sydney Theatre Company, she asked for um, the version, by which time Nick had died, sadly, 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 of a recurrent melanoma. And uh, Robin had taken me to breakfast to discuss the casting. I'm reluctant because she's a good friend and very much, thank God, living, to say too much about that meeting. But one of the things she said was, I don't want to cast music theatre people. I want to cast actors who can sing. With respect to my dear friend, I think that was a mistake. Mm. Because as I said to her, bear in mind that in my opinion, people who go to musical will forgive indifferent acting. They may forgive indifferent dancing, they will not forgive indifferent singing. And musical theatre is a style of its own also. Yes. So you would want the best people for... Well, interestingly enough, I thought the two best people in that production of Robbins were both music theatre people. Nancy Hayes playing the schoolmistress, I thought was definitive. And um, Rachel Beck playing, playing um, Peg. I thought they were the two best people. Yeah, beautiful. And of course the show features what I consider to be an anthem of, of Australian showbiz or, or theatre. And that is... I know what you're going to say. Oh! Ah! What, did, what, what were you... Uh, 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 yes, well, I can see what you mean. It is, uh, uh, I thought you were going to say the casuarina tree. That's the, play that, that's the song that everyone talks about. Yeah. To me. Oh, yes, that's, that's the... Uh, they the, say, the oh, that's such a lovely old folk song. They think it's a, an Australian folk song. It isn't. Yeah. Yeah. Nick 
said to me, as he always did before, we, when I say always, when he did three musicals, he would say, do you have any bottom drawer numbers? By which he meant numbers right for recycling. And uh, there had been a song, uh, Anne Brooksbank and Bob Ellis wrote a, a play which we did in Perth, believing we were doing the world premiere. It was called Whitlam Days. And very sneakily, I'm afraid, I don't know why Bob did this. For years, I wouldn't talk to him. Uh, <laughs> that soon changed. Opened the night before under the title, because we had the right to do the world premiere, under the title Down Under, but it was the same play. Very naughty. <laughs> very naughty. And there was a number, there was a song in that called Tonight It Isn't Christmas. I don't know if it was by Bob or by Anne or by them jointly, and I set the music to it. And I played it for Nick. Uh, and that's the number that eventually became Nine Day Wonder, which ends the show. He said, how would that sound in the minor? And I played in the minor. And we both said... And that became... He wrote, he wrote uh, words to it. I gave him what he would ask for, the lead line. He wrote words to it. And he added a little coda to each verse. She oak by the river bank, softly sighing. She oak by the river bank. Lover come back to me. And so all I had to do differently was to set that little tag each time. And uh, a lot of people think it's an Australian folk song. Because he got, he got the, uh, it sung in the show as if it were a folk song. And he got the, the particular patois of a, with its repetition and um, falling in the same place, Casuarina comes as, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a marvelous bit of pastichery and it works wonderfully in the piece. And, and so too does Once in a Blue Moon, I think, and, and that wonderful lyric of, of catching lightning in a bucket. Well, that's an old phrase that he knew, and I have heard it many times since, but not until he taught me. He said, just one night someone said to him, you catch the lightning in a bottle. But he couldn't find a, rem a, 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 a memory, f a, a, a rhyme for bottle. And so uh, uh, it goes... Uh, now and then you've half a mind to chuck it. Then comes the night, you, you know, what you show what you can do, and all of a sudden, and, all, and, and then all at once you catch the lightning in a bucket, and the moon changes colour. You talk about uh, quaint Australian expressions. Of course, you created a whole song around Cinder Down Huey. Yes. Well, in the original production at, um, at NIDA, that had been a song called... Um, Watch It Coming Down. And that had been a reworking of a number I wrote in Perth for a Dorothy Hewitt musical, not musical, play with music called Cat's Paw, um, which Arnie had done. Uh, quite a number of things came out because the, uh, when he gave me, the, when I read the lyrics for uh, Hiss the Villain, I thought, oh, this would suit this number very well, but there aren't enough words. He gave me a lyric which was eight lines uh, long. And the melody I had written it to, written by Dorothy, was 10 lines long. And he did this extraordinary thing. He found a way of inserting 
two lines in the middle between the two quatrains. One of the things that I'm not sure has been celebrated enough is, was, was Nick's craftsmanship, the mastery of craft. And I have to say generally, so if I had to make a general negative comment about the arts in Australia, I would say it is this, that there is not enough respect for craft. It's a world of leaky canvas, of mud and sodden guy ropes. A haven for desperates and misfits and crooks. Who walk a two-way tightrope from triumph to disaster. Living on their nerve ends, their lungs or their looks. And the art of the profession. As we like to call our calling. Is phony smiles. And hasty lies. And midnight flits. But the show goes on. Though Singapore is falling through peritonitis. And the sweets. But once in a blue moon, it's worth all the yakka. That's when you taste the loving car. Year after year, the game's not worth a cracker. Then the moon changes colour and the sky lights up. Yes, night on end, you poker minds in jackets. Stick on your top and give it one more chance. Cause maybe tonight you'll catch the lightning in a bucket. If that blue moon shining as you It's a world of lumpy mattresses. Bed bugs and mozzies. Railway refreshment rooms. And brown Windsor soup. Grease paint running off you. Stinking sweaty cozies. Paper thin walls. And a baby with it's, it's the ingenue who robs you. And runs off with the drama. It's smiling through the silence. When your best jokes die. <laughs> It's hay and hell and foolagal And broken hill in summer A handbrake merry-go-round at sixpence a But once in a blue moon It's worth all the yakka That's when you taste the loving car Year after year Game's not worth a cracker Then the moon changes colour And the sky lights up Yes, nights on end You have a mind to chuck it Stick on your tongue And give it one more chance And what do you know You catch the lightning in a bucket For that blue moon shining As you That blue moon beaming sends the moon beam streaming.
Terry, we've covered so much ground uh, in this conversation. There's so much more that we could cover. Maybe we'll do it in another episode. <laughs> but have you thought about writing a book? I haven't, but other people have. Okay. Not a publisher, but a number of friends have said, why don't you write, write a book? Well, I'm not by nature a very honest person. I find it difficult to be honest about things of which I'm not entirely uh, proud. I'm not much of being a blow, of blowing my trumpet. Um, and I think my, my, I think my career reflects that. It's not been without success, but it might have been more successful. And I don't know where the interest would be. King theatre students, lovers of the theatre. Lovers of the theatre. <laughs> yes. Well, your legacy is extensive and, you know, the, the audiences who have uh, seen productions that you've directed or, or written or composed certainly um, have loved what you've contributed to Australian theatre and, uh, and thank you very much. So, Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. <laughs> <laughs> and as are you. Thanks, Terry. What a brilliant insight into a brilliant career in Australian theatre. My guest today, Mr Terence Clark. Thanks for making us a part of your podcast listening. A new episode of The Stages podcast is released every Thursday. I know that many of you have been recommending the podcast to colleagues and friends. Thank you very much. It's much appreciated. Until next time. I'm Peter Ayers, and you've been listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Keep warm, keep well. I'll catch you next time.